what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. I wrote a book about goal setting that is not about goal setting. Not really. It's about examining everything that lurks beneath the task of setting a goal. It's a book that asks, what is a goal, really? What purpose does a goal serve? And is that purpose truly benefiting us, the goal setters? These are big, messy questions, but they are far from abstract. Our answers to these questions, whether we know it or not, shape the way we work and live on a daily basis. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores navigating the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. This intermediary space, the space between philosophical questions and practical implications, is a place I happily hang out in all day long. Luckily, I know someone who likes hanging out in that place as much as I do. His name is Charlie Gilkey. He's a friend of the pod, as well as the co-founder of Productive Flourishing and author of Start Finishing. He's also the host of the Productive Flourishing podcast. Today's episode is a rebroadcast from the Productive Flourishing feed. Charlie and I talk about why in the world I wrote a productivity book, how the cultural code we operate in impacts the way we plan and set goals, how that code disproportionately harms some more than others, and much, much more. If you like this conversation, be sure to check out the Productive Flourishing podcast for more of Charlie's unique brilliance. Now, I'll turn it over to Charlie. You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. I think that there are kind of higher values to appeal to. Um, You know, typically the people I've worked with in the past, the people I have on my podcast have a very high value for impeccability, for doing exceptional work, for creating remarkable things, um, for doing stuff that they're really, really proud of. And I think that appealing to that value and that desire is the way to say, okay, what does it take? What resources do you need in order to create that level of work? And it is always more than you're giving them. (laughs) And then the question is, well, where do those resources come from? Well, they come from the 12 other projects that don't matter as much, that don't mean as much to you, that you don't care about as much. If there's financial value tied to those projects, then okay, we can ask questions about, well, how else can we create that financial value or, you know, what does need to get held on to? But I think the first 
thing is to admit to yourself, to give yourself permission to say, I value creating something remarkable more than I value creating more. That was Tara McMullen, a writer, podcaster, producer, and return guest to the podcast. Our philosophical bent makes us both reluctant and unusual productivity teachers. And in this episode, we take a deeper look into the cultural codes that influence our goal setting, doing, and being. This deeper look helps us extract the pieces that lead us away from what matters most to us and reorient to what does. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Tara, I'm so delighted to have you on the podcast. And as I was just saying in the green room, there are so many different ways we could take this conversation. Um, And I'm excited about whatever emerges. Um, We don't have to be telic about it. Um, But welcome to the show again. Well, thanks for having me, Charlie. I'm so stoked to talk to you. Cool. Um, I'm just going to dive right in because as... I heard about this new book coming from you. I'm like, Tara can write about so many wonderful things. And um, I'm going to say the label, even though you and I might buckle against the label, I'm like, she wrote a productivity book. Fascinating. Um, of all the things and all the, well, all the ways that you could have taken what you were thinking about at the time of this book, Why'd you start with a product or how did it frame itself as a productivity book? Yeah. I mean, as I said to you just a second ago, this is not the book that I expected to be writing. And at the same time, um, I am talking about things that I think really deeply about on a regular basis that are really important to me from a values perspective, from a philosophy philosophical perspective, from a sort of cultural perspective. And ultimately, I think what what led to the book in this form, what led to these ideas being melded into productivity was a personal quest to reestablish my relationship with my work, uh, to reestablish my relationship with myself outside of the goals that I set or the work that I created or the milestones that I hit. And it also came out of years of conversations with people who had all sorts of different relationships to productivity, to goals, to their daily work. And in that process of both unpacking my own hangups and relationship with goals. And in the process of having those conversations, I just really started to notice how much more there was going on beneath the surface, how much our culture, our family upbringing, our identity, our um, ideas of what's good and what's bad shape the way that we approach our work how we structure our work, the goals that we set, and that so much of the way that our world is structured is there to sort of hijack 
everything that we truly believe in for its own purposes. And I know that sounds like super dark um, and I can get pretty dark (laughs) with this stuff. But I mean, I think that's, you know, we're, we know that we're bombarded by marketing. We know that we're bombarded by these sort of parasocial role models that we see on social media every day. We are bombarded with, as I say in the book, shoulds and supposed tos. And all of that plays against or hides, covers up, um, you know, the real things that we want, that we desire, the the people that we truly want to become. And it's not just this sort of kind of personal growth, philosophical, existential exercise, but it really impacts the day-to-day operations of a business, a worker, a mother, a father. Um, and that's something that I really was interested in exploring, sort of that on one side, these really big questions about who we are, who we want to be, why we do the things that we do. And on the other side, what the real impact of those things are in our day-to-day lives. We share so much in common as we've talked about in the past. And, you know, the way you sort of frame that is like with you know, productive flourishing, me fin- me writing start finishing was not a surprise for folks. It's like, that's kind of right. what's there. But what was underneath my thinking about start finishing surprises a lot of people, right? And so it's like, I think I've shared this with you before, I, I, I spend most day with two paradoxes, right? It's on the one hand, it's why do we not do the things that matter most to us? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we know, I know why we don't do the things that don't matter. Or we don't want to do, but what is the, why don't we do the things we really want to do and that really matter to us? That's actually a mystery when you think about it. Right. Um, and then, oh, yeah. and then the second one, which is about team habits is like, why is it that we are evolutionarily and psychologically and socially primed to work with other people yet working in teams can be so hard. <laughs> Truth. Right. And so, um, and that's where you start to unpack a lot of like, what is really going on here? Because those two tensions or paradoxes get you into all sorts of fields. And um, what I love about, especially chapter one and one through three, I love the, I love the whole book, but chapter one through three, I'm like, okay, Tara's done something that's really, really brave in that as a fellow philosopher, she's actually shown the 90% that's under the iceberg, <laughs> Of what's, you know, what comes with what she's talking about and what she's thinking. Cause a lot of times there is, and you, and you comment on the book, especially when you start thinking about the objectification of creators, a lot mm-hmm. of times you have to package your ideas and thoughts and what the market wants. That's business, right? Yep. Um, and it turns out in most scenarios, especially in the, in the fields rerun, that 90% under <laughs> the, uh, underneath the water is not really what people are showing up wanting to talk about, right? But if you don't grapple with that, everything that's above it just gets you all messed up. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was – I mean, you've you've nailed exactly my intent for the book, which is just to say, okay, you've done 
all of this stuff. You know about smart goals. You know about planning. You know about building projects. You you know these things. You've read the books. This is not your first rodeo. Why hasn't it worked to this point? What is still standing in your way? And like you said, it's all that ninety percent. My and so the the gamble there, I think, is. Are people willing to hear this now, given the fact that every book under the sun has been written about, you know, productivity hacks and life hacks and, and you know, you can you can get it all for free. You can pay for it. You can get someone you can hire someone as a coach. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't solve the bigger problems if they're if they're not addressed. And my goal was really to package it in a way that made it interesting to work through, made it self-reflective at the same time. I'm trying not to lecture people <laughs> and stuff, even though sometimes I'd like to. Um, but, you know, really use that as a way to set up a complete rethinking of how we set goals, how we make plans, how we build projects. And really, you know, this, the second half of the book, to your point, it's like, it's good and I and I like it and I'm proud of it and I think it's really useful. And also the second half of the book can be adapted and molded into whatever system someone else likes. It's the first half of the book that will change the game, um, I hope. Yeah. Um, I was talking to our joint friend Kate about something, uh, Kate Strathman. So she was on the podcast mm-hmm. a few episodes ago and she asked me, she's like, hey, do you have any – any books that just can help people with project management in teams, like team project mm-hmm. management, like what's your go-to? And I was like, mm, that one's hard for me because so many of the systems that we might look at, whether they're straight project management books or whether they're strategy execution books, bake in values and myths and things that I know for her, who she would be recommended to is like, I don't think that's going to jive. Like I can't just give you mm-hmm. four, di- four disciplines of execution for the type of people that, that she rolls with and for them to be like anything but allergic and have an allergic reaction to it. Right. And it's sort of yeah. tying into what we're talking about is I think we often don't think what's underneath these systems. What's the real values that these systems, what, or another way of saying it. And, and it's like, what types of people do these systems nudge us to become? Yes. And is that who yes. we want to become? Yes. Yes. I mean, you know, you know my my background from studying religion to thinking that that's what I wanted to do with my life to becoming a blogger, business coach, whatever. This weird, weird trajectory that people are always asking me to go through, which I will not go through here, only to say that what I have found in my entire life, probably starting from the time I was nine or 10 years old, is that I'm fascinated by the question of why do people do the things that they do? Why do they believe the things that they believe? And how do those beliefs and actions sort of interplay together? And, you know, that's a really big thing (laughs) to be fascinated by. But I've had the privilege of being able to explore answers to those questions in a number of different arenas. And so for me, this, this book 
and, you know, thinking about project management, thinking about how you run a business, thinking about all these different things. It's just one iteration of me exploring those bigger questions. Um, and that, you know, I, I love those questions because they help me better understand just how the world works and how I exist in it. Um, but there are also questions that really shape how I function on a day-to-day basis and how other people function on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. So when I used to teach philosophy, which is a long time ago at this point, my job was to, well, my approach um, was to say like, hey, this is the ideas that we're going to talk about Mm -hmm. are not relics of the past, right? And they're not just like that history of an idea, like, oh yeah, we thought this 200 years ago. And it mm-hmm. developed and it sort of led us like these are things that you're going to grapple with. Right. And mm-hmm. if you think that philosophy is divorced from your life, I think you have a poor understanding of both. Right. Um, yes. And that's my job to sort of in that context was to unpack those, right? To show that we can't really separate the metaphors we live by. We can't separate the deep Greco Roman Greco Roman Indian, you know, deep influences in who we are with what we think today, right? Mm-hmm. There's a there's a easily collect- connectable line between those, you know, the ideas of stoicism and productivity culture today. Like it is like in the code itself, right? Yes. Um and so um I just really appreciate you going there. Um and obviously we're we're sharing a similar pulpit as it were. I was going to say preaching to the preaching to the audience, but we're kind of doing this together. I think when you look at Oliver Burke's book, when you look at, you know, mm-hmm. just where we are talking about minimalism or essentialism, I should say, talking about displacement and constraints, talking about burnout, I think mm-hmm. there's a broader sort of understanding that what we're doing isn't working. Mm-hmm. And there's a also that alongside the absurdity that we keep buying what's not working, right? And so oh, yeah. it's a, we're in a weird space, but that's part of part of the culture here. So, um, you know, diving in, like, where do we start with this one? So, okay, in your discussion of the validation spiral, which I want to unpack a little bit, mm-hmm. you say, in our culture, women and marginalized people experience the imperative to overgive, overdeliver, and overcommit to the most significant degree. Mm-hmm. All right. So fascinating. And I'm glad you said that. So let's unpack the validation spiral. And then sort of part of why some of us are more caught in it than others. Yeah. So the validation spiral is the idea that we have been trained to seek validation um, externally, of course, and one of the ways that we do that is by saying yes to things, by taking on projects, taking on tasks, saying yes to, you know, the carpool or making cookies for the party or hosting a dinner party, whatever it might be. In every area of our life, lives, we are taking on these responsibilities. And whether explicitly or just sort of implicitly, part of that is wanting to be seen as useful, valuable, worthy, 
and having all of those feelings validated for us. And we we there's sort of an inherent belief, there's an underlying story that if I do this thing, then I'll look like a good mother. If I do this thing, I'll be a good entrepreneur. If I do this thing, I'll be a productive worker. And what happens is that because so much of our world is built around making us feel less than useful, less than valuable, less than worthy, less than validated, we start to pile on more, more and more and more. And what happens from there is that our finite capacity, our finite access to resources gets spread thinner and thinner and thinner across all the things we say yes to. And so what I, what I talk about is sort of the, the dual sides of this, which is overcommitment and undercommitment. When we overcommit on the whole, we undercommit to individual tasks and responsibilities because we simply do not have the necessary resources to actually fully commit to them, to do what is required for real in those responsibilities. And this is where it starts to spiral, because when we're undercommitted to those responsibilities and we're not doing as good a job as, as we think we should be or we'd hope to be, we're not getting that external validation, what do we do? We say yes again. <laughs> we take on more and more and more. And our resources never get filled back up. We just keep depleting them, keep stretching them thinner and thinner. And that can lead to sort of that clinical burnout kind of scenario, or it can just lead to what I think is familiar for the vast majority of people, that sense of dissatisfaction, that sense of not being enough, um, and sort of a, an overall perspective on your life that you're just not quite measuring up. And so we go through this spiral until we can't go through it anymore. Some of us hit the hard reset button. And then what happens again? We do it all over. <laughs> and so it's this really nasty cycle that we get caught in. But but that's sort of the, the validation spiral in a nutshell. I love it. And so to pull it back, why are some of us more prone to that than others? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, some of us receive more um, messages that we're not good enough, that we don't belong, that we're not worthy, that we're not useful, that we're not valuable, right? Um, and largely in the United States and in, in West, in the global North, Western uh, civilization, culture, that kind of thing, the people who receive more messages that they are worthy and valid are white straight men, uh, able-bodied, um, all of all of the things, right? And for everyone who holds a marginalized identity, and for each of those marginalized identities, we get more and more messages of not belonging, of being unworthy. Um, and so we are more prone to go out and say yes to more and more and more things and to measure ourselves more harshly against what is considered to be the ideal, the standard that we're supposed to be aiming for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think I write about this and start finishing, but, um, you know, I said to say that many of us, a lot of us are socialized to be the supporting actor in someone else's story. Yeah. Right. And so when you're the supporting actor, whenever that person <laughs> needs something, whenever the main actor needs something, you say, yes, that's your job, right? That's what you do. Like, and the idea that you can be the lead actor in your own story 
and the you know further on the other side the responsibility which I have to be careful with that one because that, that's a loaded word right but sort mm-hmm. of that that autonomy that sort of ability to sort of prioritize and put yourself as an op- as an end of yourself as well to go Kantian on this one really messes with a lot of people because it's the first time it's like wait a second I can be in the spotlight what does if that's true how does the rest of my life and work and responsibilities and relationships go and that's a tense place for people to be so it's easier for them to slide back into the supporting character because turns out for many people to step into the spotlight will disrupt your relationships it can be some mm-hmm. hard conversations you're going to make if you take that seriously you're likely to make some changes but there are some of us who are so unlike the society is set up for us that they never have to have that conversation Exactly. Yeah. So there's a, a framework that I really love for what you're describing here, the the starring role versus the supporting actor um, that was developed by a philosopher named Kate Mann um, out of Cornell. And her book is called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. Um, and one of the things that she talks about in that book is the the divide between human beings and human givers and who is allowed to be just because they are and who is expected to give of themselves to allow other people to be. And what I really love about that framework is that there isn't a spotlight, there isn't a star, there isn't that sort of like pedestal. Mm -hmm. It's more, am I allowing myself to just be? Am I allowing myself to be whole? Am I allowing myself to be enough for me? Or am I always putting myself in that role of being the giver, of giving to someone else as a way of seeking validation and worth? Not that there's anything wrong with giving, but I think giving only works if you also have the capacity and resources to be. Um, and again, in our in our world, the people who are allowed to be human beings, the people who are expected to fully be present in their being are white, straight, non-disabled men, as opposed to the whole rest <laughs> of us that are largely expected to be there to, to give and provide uh, to the human beings. In a similar vein, a, a coaching prompt that pops up a lot in our academy when people are like sort of struggling with things, their first thing is, what do I need to do? That's their question. What do I need yeah. to do? And typically, Angela or I will push back and say, okay, let's pause that for a second. Let's start with, what do you need? Question mark. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and it's a pattern interrupt because we so often just can't center ourselves as the being <laughs> with needs, mm-hmm. with things like that. And so when we go to the human doing part, right, the human giving part, and it's like, let's start there. Let's start with the with the being, with the needing. Let's start with that and own that that's okay and then figure out what to do. Because if we don't do that, we're just going to do a bunch of stuff and then not be satisfied anyways. Yes, 100%. I'm curious. Um, you mentioned undercommitment there, and we share mm-hmm. a lot of similarities when it comes to that thinking. And so I'm wondering – like, how do you approach the resistance and exasperation that often comes up um, when you point out the cost of undercommitment and or the allergic reaction some folks have to being nudged that they need to focus more? Oh, if I had a succinct answer to this question, I would have many, many millions of dollars. I think. <laughs> um, the way I... 
so one way that I work on that pushback uh, and the resistance and and just yeah the the spiraling that can come from just insisting on focus is that I think that there are kind of higher values to appeal to. Um, you know, typically the people I've worked with in the past, the people I have on my podcast have a very high value for impeccability, for doing exceptional work, for creating remarkable things, um, for doing stuff that they're really, really proud of. And I think that appealing to that value and that desire is the way to say, okay, what does it take? What resources do you need in order to create that level of work? And it is always more than you're giving them. <laughs> and then the question is, well, where do those resources come from? Well, they come from the 12 other projects that don't matter as much, that don't mean as much to you, that you don't care about as much. If there's financial value tied to those projects, then okay, we can ask questions about, well, how else can we create that financial value or, you know, what does need to get held on to? But I think the first thing is to admit to yourself, to give yourself permission to say, I value creating something remarkable more than I value creating more <laughs> or more than I value um, saying yes to all of these things. And I think part and parcel with that is an ability to admit that our capacities are limited and that different and that different people have different limitations. They have different surplus, areas in terms of the resources that they have access to. Some people have smaller cups, other people have big buckets, right? For me, the the last couple of years has been a real process of allowing myself to have limits. And you know, speaking of stories that are built into the code yeah. that we all operate in is, you know, you can do anything you put your mind to. No limits. Like all of that motivational poster shit, <laughs> we can feel like, um, oh, that's so silly, but it's in there. It's in our brains and it's controlling what we do. And so being able to say, no, I don't have the ability to be in a Zoom room or on Squadcast more than five times a week, that's a hard limit for me. That shifts the way I work. It shifts how I think about what I say yes to, what I, what projects I take on, what structure I give to my business and the way that I work. Um, and for me, that's been so liberating to be able to say, no, I can't. Like, I can't. I can't say yes to any more things. It doesn't matter how much more I think. I will feel validated on the other side of it. I simply don't have the capacity. So accepting our limits, celebrating our limits even, and appealing to those higher values. What's more important, saying yes or doing things impeccably well? For me, it's going to be doing things impeccably well 99% of the time. I love that. I'm part of, you know, when we talk about the five projects rule, which I'm sure you've heard me talk about, but everyone on the podcast, just as a reference, no more than five active projects per time horizon. Okay. And so um, people are like, cool, 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 cool. Five work projects. And I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> yes. No, no. 
if you're going through a life transition, like personal projects count. If it's if you're moving, guess what? That's a project. If you are, you know, if you got a diagnosis or you got a understanding about yourself that it's taking a while to unpack, that's a project, right? Someone dies, project, COVID, project, all these sort of things. And then, you know, people will talk to me and I'll just start counting. They'll be like, I'm doing this and then I'm this and then this. And then like, they'll look up and I'm already got like four fingers up, right? And mm-hmm. they're like, but I want to do these seven other things. I'm like, well, um, what are we going to do about that? Right. Um, and, and the fact of the matter is where the suffering comes from is that we are infinite sentience. Like we could dream up all these sort of things bounded by finite resources and finite bodies. And if you always let the infinite sentience sort of rule, you're going to be caught in a, in a um, spiral of frustration and depression and, and things like that. Cause you, you just can't um, do it. And speaking of two moral codes or two deep things into the code, from moral philosophy, we get two sort of things that trip us up. One is ought implies can. Ought mm. implies can. And so there's really no moral prescription to do something you can't do. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that when we, throw, when we go through extreme examples, but we don't p- apply it on the day-to-day. Right? And so we tell all these should stories, all these ought stories, without thinking, can I actually do that, though? Um. And then the other one that trips us, and it's actually called the good alt tie up, uh, tie up or the good alt tie up. So those things that are good to do, you ought to do, right? It's superlative, yes, or not superlative, super arrogation. Um, and what happens is a lot of times we have the one that I did, like I could, I can do everything, or I can do anything. Therefore, I could do everything. That's the conflation mm-hmm. we make. Like I would write the poster, like you could do anything except everything. We all need that poster, Charlie. So start your merch line. Start the merch. PF merch. Um, look at the link below. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, <laughs> Ring that bell. Ring that bell. Um, all the YouTube watchers know what we're talking about there. Um, yeah. <laughs> but there's this other idea that because something would be good to do, I ought to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's problematic. Super irrigation is problematic because we can't do everything that would be good to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just a residue left over in that. But again, yes, that we'll, we might talk about that in a moral philosophy class. But when we talk about on the day-to-day living, so much of our suffering comes from those two things. We apply a should or ought where we can't. Mm-hmm. And we apply a ought or should because it might be good to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, go yeah. For me, um, I think the good piece is especially problematic in that – I don't think we're in the habit of truly defining what good is. And so that is really important to me is to say, okay, well, what does good actually look like for you right now? What would be a good result of this project, of your business, of your day? If you know what good is, it is a lot easier to say, well, those shoulds aren't actually good. But the more ambiguous good is – the the harder it is to create a filter. So just for an ex- like a super marketing example of this, um, back when I was still kind of coaching business owners on a regular basis, I was constantly getting questions about, you know, I want to build my audience so that I can launch an online course, or I want to, you know, I want to get more followers on Instagram. I want to get more email subscribers onto my list because that's how I'm going to grow my business. 
that comes from a very ambiguous idea of what is good for a business. But when you break it down and you say, okay, well, what is it that you really want from this business? Well, you know, I'd like to work fewer hours. I'd like to work um, on this type of project. It's like, well, that's a completely different business. You don't need any social media, let alone a following for that. You don't need even an email list for that kind of business. Let me let me walk you through the numbers. And then when we define good in that very specific way, it's like, oh, the shoulders drop, the, the chest slackens, right? It is just this deep feeling of relief of like, oh, now I know what the filter is. Now I know all of those shoulds are BS that I don't need to listen to. They might be shoulds for someone else. They might be good for someone else, but they're not good for me. They're not, they don't make sense in this situation. Um, so yeah, I'm really, really big on narrowly defining and concretely defining what good is whenever we're talking about kind of filtering through those shoulds and supposed tos. Yeah, the trickiness here, and I'm sure we're aligned on this one, is there are the sort of economic goods, mm -hmm. and then the, the non-economic goods, right? And so, it, to take your example, it's like, oh, well, I want to launch a course, and I want to, you know, do all the things that they say on Instagram, and we'll not even get into that, right? <laughs> um, enough said. Um, but it, when you unpack it, it's like, well, there are those economic goods, but part of what they want to do is launch the course so they can teach the thing. I'm like, mm -hmm. well, there are a lot easier ways to teach the thing, right? Let's explore yes. some of those ways of teaching the things. And then it's sort of like, okay, that's a non-economic good. But then it's like, oh, but then I have to make money off of that. I was like, well, why? What? <laughs> Let's unpack that piece. How much are you going to spend to make that money? And you start really doing the unpacking. And it's like, so I could just do the thing. And I'm like, I mean, logically, yeah, <laughs> right? Um, it's yes. really about giving yourself the permission to place of many non-economic goods, your satisfaction and happiness and ease and joy and creativity up there, right? And saying that mm -hmm. actually is more important to me, or is at least equally as important as the economic goods and working from there. So um, that's another thing as we start talking about when you, when you define good, remember that you're a part of that equation and you don't have to define it in economic terms, right? Yes. Um, and 100%. I think you might find a different way of running your business, which is, I don't know if you're up for talking about it, Tara, but you've made some pretty substantial changes over the last 12 to 18 months. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what is time these days, right? Yeah, what is time? <laughs> yeah, but it's I, been about 12 to 18 months. <laughs> somewhere in that range, 12 to 18 months between five years. I don't know, right? Uh, but let's talk about a few of those changes and sort of the why behind it, especially sort of calling out the non-economic goods part of it. Mm hmm. Yeah. So um, what you're alluding to is the fact that I stepped away from running the community that I had been building for five plus years previous to that. So um, about six or seven years ago now, I kind of transitioned a group business coaching program into a more of a peer to peer support network. And it was a mission that I really, really believed in. Um, I think that largely business owners are not nearly as connected to each other and what each other are doing. Um, that knowledge, there's, there's like a huge knowledge gap between 
actual people on the ground who's who are doing the stuff and then the influencers and the gurus and the people telling you the shoulds and supposed to's mm-hmm. right um and there's no reason for that to exist other than it can be really hard to connect to each other so the idea was build out this community use the platform that i have use the experience that i have being able to say you know you know, in my group coaching program, the reason it was a group was because I wanted to bring people together, not because I wanted to make more money every time I ran the thing. Um, Because I could have made more money coaching individuals. Turns out. Um, Yeah, I know. (laughs) The lessons we learned. (laughs) Um, But I truly, truly, truly believed in the group model. And then in the community model, I still do. And What I recognized in the process of that five years was that as much as I believed in the mission and the vision of the community, and for as much joy as I would get, I remember telling you it's summer 2020, there's nothing that makes me happier than just like fielding questions from people Mm -hmm. or starting a conversation that gets people thinking differently about things. That's true. I mean, maybe not nothing that I enjoy more than that, but that is a huge source of joy for me. And the actual running of a community like that, the building of a community like that, the caregiving that goes into a community like that is not a match for my neurology, for my psychology, for my everything, (laughs) my social interactions. Um, And The last 18 months has really been unpacking just how limited my resources are in that area. I want to show up in this way. I want, I ought to show up in this other way. I should be available to people in this, in this way. I should be able to have these difficult conversations or whatever it might be. And I can't. I can't. I tried. I tried really hard. And um, it's not being overly, uh, I'm not exaggerating when I say it nearly killed me, right? You know, there were times last summer when I thought the best way to get out of this is to not be around anymore. Um, And so that whole process of kind of unpacking my responsibilities around the mission and the vision, whether those responsibilities were things that I had the resources to actually commit to, recognizing, no, there is no way in God's green earth, short of handing the handing over all of that work to someone else, which I couldn't afford to do at that point. Um, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I like, that's a hard line. It took way too long to figure out that that was the hard line. Um, But in the end, it I had a lot of personal learning in that process. And I know from talking to folks who are kind of with me in that process that others had personal learning from that, too. And that it was beneficial to see someone say, no, I can't. Right. There's a line from Jenny Lawson's book, um, Broken in the Best Possible Way, where I'm going to mangle it. But she says something to the effect of, you know, I'd like to be able to say, yeah, of course I can do that thing. But the truth is, I can't. And that's one of those lines that like buries itself deep into my brain, into my heart, into my body, because 
That is exactly my experience. There are so many things I would like to do because of my values, because of the the vision that I have, and I can't. I hope someone else does them. I can't. Um, so uh, at the end of 2021, I stepped away from the network and um, Mighty Networks actually took it over for me. They hired my full-time employee. So I didn't even have to, I mean, I let someone go, but I let her go into a better job, <laughs> which is like the best thing that's ever. part of our jobs, right? Yes. Um, and so this year I've been writing the book. I've been exploring new creative territory with the podcast. Um, what I've enjoyed kind of unpacking with people recently is just how much I've stepped away from any form of content marketing. I still create a load of content, but none of it is content marketing because I have nothing to sell but the book. Um, I suppose that in some ways right now I'm creating content marketing because I am asking people to buy the book, but the impetus behind what I put out into the world is no longer what can I say to get people to buy this thing? What conversation can I have that will you know, prompt them to think about buying this thing? It is just what questions do I want to ask? What's the best medium to ask them in? What research do I need to do? And what does the end product look like? And that has been like the best thing ever. Um, and so now I'm thinking about like, okay, what does the, what does the, what does the version of this that makes money look like? Um, but it's, I don't think it's going to be marketing to the people who consume the content. I think it's going to be something else. I love that. And listener, you got to know Tara knows this because I've, I've told her, but there have been so many pieces, so many, so much, so many essays I've seen you write where I've been like, that, that's fire. I can see her smiling in the, 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 the creator smile, which is always sort of a, a pain smile because you're not quite sure. <laughs> yes. You know what I'm talking about. You're like, I'm loving oh, totally. this, but I'm hating this at the same time. Um, and I'm like, it hurts my brain so good. <laughs> it hurts my brain so good. And why? It made me miss lunch. I hate it, but I'm going to do it anyways. <laughs> right. Um, and so I've seen so much of that in you, and you're visibly lighter now with what you're doing than in, in some of our previous conversations. And so, yeah, I think. Um, there are sometimes I tell the story of sort of the gods or divine beings sort of sitting there wherever they are and being like, you know, these humans are such weird creatures. They only learn through pain. Um, and like when we just look at the things that we could have, should have, so on and so forth, it's like usually after some pain, that's the catalyst for us to get real about our limits. Right. And I wish it weren't that way, except for many of us operate. And it's part of the myths and the coding of our of our culture that like you push mm -hmm. until you absolutely can't anymore. Um, and so we do things like we don't ask for help before we absolutely need it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, but what if we all as a community practiced inviting other people in before, like we're like that person crawling through the desert and we crawl as far as I can with no water. Then like we're about to die like help. <laughs> right. And this one's like, oh, I had water the whole time. I've been here. Right. Like, why didn't yeah. you ask? Well, it's part of this code that you don't. Right. Um, you take it as far. And if you ask for help earlier before you need it, you are less than you're a taker as opposed yeah. to. Well, how would we want to treat our loved ones? Yeah. And why can't we treat yeah. ourselves that way? Yeah. I mean, what you're describing is exactly the vision that I had for the What Works Network. It's like, let's get a 
a support team together before you need the help. And regardless of the fact that people were paying good money for this every single month, we would, (laughs) it was like, just, it was so hard to get people to say what they needed because, and, and, you know, Shannon would go and, and tap people, uh, you know, they'd, they'd say to her, you know, I'm thinking about this and, and, you know, this isn't a direct message. And, and she would say, well, post about, oh, but I don't want to be an imposition. I don't want to be that person. I, I, you know, I, I, I think I can get this figured out on my own. It's like, but you're here. Why? So, yeah, I mean, that I that is exactly what I want for everyone. It's what I want for myself still because I'm I'm still terrible at it. There's there are things I've really gotten better at in the last few years. That is not one of them. <laughs> well, given what you've been going through though, I think there's a um there might be a different dynamic there because you know, asking and I understand this, right? And Especially coming from, um, you know, being a person of color and coming from communities of color, historically, when we've asked for help, it's always created a debt or an obligation. It's yeah. never been free help, right? Yeah. Um, and so there's always this negotiation of, is the help worth being, worth having a social obligation or an economic obligation or some other thing? And you're like, I'm good, right? I don't need, mm-hmm. I don't need an extra thing, right? When I got all these other things that I had nothing to do with on top of me already. So I'm just cool, right? Yeah. Um, and so it takes a lot, a lot of living to decode that, to be like, what Absolutely. if, what if inviting, you know, or asking, I keep saying inviting because I think about it differently. Like asking for help is such a load of, but like inviting Tara to contribute, right? In ways that she would most want to, it feels different, right? So I'm like, hmm, mm-hmm. if I don't do that, and I know that that's something Tara might like to do, then I've denied her the opportunity <laughs> to do the thing she might like to do. Like I've said, I've got some yeah. ice cream that you might like, but I'm not going to share it with you, right? And if you don't want the <laughs> ice cream, fine, you can say I don't want the ice cream, right? But yeah. it just changes that equation. But it's such hard coded that help is an obligation or only those who ask for help um, or people who ask for help are less than the, the capable mm-hmm. people who don't need to ride and to sort of ride off the community and all those sort of things. It's like, that's not the world we want to live in though. No. And it's also not the world we live in. Right. right? So going back to those human beings, they don't have any problem asking for things. This that's just that's part of being, right? Is that they feel um, not entitled, but they feel some of them do. Uh, <laughs> they feel uh, they don't feel that deficit. They don't feel that lack when they ask for help because they understand people. There's give and take constantly. We're constantly exchanging. We're constantly in these social relations. It's the it's the givers that are not good at asking for for help and support. Um, I love what you said about sort of the indebtedness piece, because yes, 100% for me, it's like, well, if I ask for something and they ask for me, ask me for something back, do I have the resources for that? Do I have the capacity for that? Now, the problem comes in that I'm making that calculation before the ask is even made, right? And so if I'm if I'm truly being in, in integrity with this, 
I make the ask. And if they ask for something in return, I, I say, I don't have the resources for that right now. I can do this other thing. Ask me again in a couple of months. Um, you know, here are the other options, right? But I don't have to make that calculation for someone else. Um, I can wait and see what happens. And you know, 99 times out of 100, nobody wants anything in return. You know, they might want something in return a year from now when I am more than happy to give it to them. But like, like with a book launch, no one says to an author who's launching a book, yeah, sure, I can do you that favor. But will you also do me this other, do this other thing for me? Because they know that we don't have the resources for that, right? No. So but they'll know in the future, of course, you know, ask. I might say no, but ask. Ugh, yes, such a uh, subject for me. <laughs> well, but part of and part of it is that internet relationships are weird. In, yes, in that they just are. Like I know more about you, Tara, than I do my neighbor. Yes, but I'm more prone to ask my neighbor for stuff and to sort of be in mm. relationship in a certain way. And there's sort of a um, for some, like, I think long-term relationships anyways. So we've been rocking for like 12 years now. Right. Yeah. And so I, from my perspective, if, if I ask Tara for something, I'm like, if I ask you for something, I'll speak to you directly. Right. If I ask you for something, I know at some point you might be like, Hey, I'm tapped out. And I'm like, cool. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. I'm tapped out two thirds of the time. <laughs> right. Um, but there might be some other point in which you're able to help out in different ways, but it's not like, Oh, She's tapped out then. I'm not going to help her next time she asks. That's not how this works, right? Mm -hmm. And there's also not a, a tit-for-tat sort of scenario. It might be you're tapped out now, but then there's just some way that you do that's authentically you that does this complete other thing that's supportive. And I'm like, oh, I didn't. Cool, right? Um, but I think it's just that we end up in these weird sort of optical games, right, on, on the internet. Mm -hmm. It's like, well – we say friend, but are they really a friend? And I'm like, you have my number. Like, seriously, call, <laughs> right? Yeah. If you want to. But I know that can be hard, right? So you don't have to. It's just weird, right, at a certain point. And um, so I'd say there's this unique qualification for internet or professional friends, right, that feels different than, like, our life friends that we've been rocking with for 30 years because we just know there's this, this long-term sort of thing going on there. It's it's awkward. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like the long-term perspective. I think that, you know, we are primed to see things as transactional because everything we do is mediated by the marketplace. Um, and even though on a human level, I don't think any of us would, would say, no, I really think that human interactions are like transactions and that we're all, you know, in this you know, vying for the most value out of a relationship. But... The, going back to the code, the way we think about these things is through the lens of the marketplace. It is through, is the exchange going to be equal or even worse, um, what it, what do I need to do to get the advantage in this exchange? Um, and so I think we bring that to our greatest fears about asking for help when it's not really what goes on in human relationships and if it is that's on the other it's on the other person you can it's fine um right yeah. um so yeah i think i think that there's i think getting 
to the heart of what really makes a connection with someone function as opposed to the transaction, the marketplace, um, I think can break down some of the the resistance to asking for support. Well, and what I'll say is people think like this tension about human is about asking for help is universal to humans. It's actually not. It's actually a real product of Western culture. If you read sort of death, the first 10,000 years and other books explaining African cultures, there are actually practices such that like if Tara, I loan you something mm-hmm. um, that for you to just like return it for real, for real um, and not be connected and in debt as it were actually is um, um, it's, it's your signaling that you don't want to be in community with me. Mm-hmm. And so it's not you owe me and I have something over it with you. It's no, we are sharing and we are part of the community network. And so it actually fosters that sort of behavior more than, oh, there's there's an exchange and now there's a ledger where I'm on top and you're on bottom. And at some point I'm going to I'm going to make that call. Right. And yeah. you are obligated in that moment <laughs> to to anti up. It's a weird it's a weird when you unpack it, but that's what it is. Yeah, I'm literally reading that book right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yes, the, just the whole m- paradigm shift of recognizing different ways to organize groups of people other than the marketplace is like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> this is cool. <laughs> There's so many things we can do with each other that, that um, we, I think just the veil of our culture prevents us from seeing. Right. Yeah. And that's part of part of the work we do sometimes on un- unpacking the code is like we can be this way or we can be this way. This is not determined. We don't have to follow a sort of neo humanism about like we're all just competing with each other and for dominance mm-hmm. in this brute, cold, nasty world. Like that's one view. There are multiple other views. Right. Mm-hmm. So I guess there are so many other questions I want to ask, but I'm looking at her time. I'm like, ooh, I need to let Tara go on this one. Um, <laughs> from what you've written about in What Works, um, what is the piece that you're most um, either challenged by or it is your growth edge in this moment? That's a really good question. Um. Currently, right now, this was not true a year ago, but right now, the part that I need to get back on top of is being more uh, concrete in the way I make plans and the way I build out projects. Um, I necessarily pulled back from that this year and just really leaned on practice and process, right? So it's not that my quote unquote, productivity has quote unquote, suffered. Um, I, I produce an amazing amount of stuff. Yeah, I have do. no problem saying <laughs> that. <laughs> um, and uh, while I really believe in the power of practice and process and just the routine and habit of making things, uh, there is something to be said about plotting out a project and saying, uh, I'm doing something new or I'm doing something, I, I'm building something that is separate from the practice and the process that I do on a regular basis. Um, and so for me, I think that's that's the place that I'm bumping up against right now is I'm looking at 2023 
And I'm saying, all right, what am I doing in 2023? Sure, I can keep up what I'm doing. And I think I want to look at what the next chapter of that is going to be. And in order to do that well, I need to build it out into a more concrete set of projects. Um, and yeah, I would say that that's the place where if I if I if someone peeked behind the curtain right now, they'd be like, "You don't have that project plan right now." And I'd be like, "I know, I know, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's in my head." Um, but yeah, but that's that's something that I have really benefited from in the past and something I know I will benefit again from in the future. I don't know. In that interaction, I, I just respond. you saying like, don't call me, bro. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I am, you know, I'm always happy to talk about the things I do wrong and weird and, um, you know, whatever. It's fine. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think our team is practicing a similar thing in that we have some quadrant two projects that um, need to happen. Quadrant two, urgent, but not important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or excuse me, the other way around. Important, but not yeah. urgent. Um, and so what I've started doing is just like putting a done parameter on it. Like we're done with this when this happens. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least it's not an active project. It might convert into a routine. It might do a lot of different things, but just having that clarity of like, okay, this is this is the transition point from when it's an active project on the deck versus when it's either done or routine. And I think that's been super helpful for them. So we're going to continue to explore that as a way of, of doing that um, just so that we don't end up in that like continual, either the continual caring of a project and you're like, I'm not, are we done? Are we not done? Right. <laughs> yes. Um, or just the like, uh, how long are we going to do this? And, and how do we think about the next thing? Right. So it's mm-hmm. it's a practice. And I think, I don't know, I think it's a pendulum where we go deep into the why, and that's awesome. And then there's a time where we have to float back into the when and how. Mm-hmm. And then we do too much when and how, and then we come back to the why. And then it's just, it's a pendulum, I think. Yeah, um, I agree. All righty. As the guest on today's episode, you get to leave our listeners with a invitation or a challenge, depending upon which most resonates with you. So based upon what we've talked about, what would you either invite or challenge our listeners to do in the next week? Um, I will say challenge because I love a challenge. I mean, that's kind of baked into the book. Uh, and the, the challenge that I've been issuing most often is paying attention to what you do and what you think you should be doing and ask yourself why. So every time, you know, you think, oh, I should I should get out of bed right now. It's 5 a.m., I should just get out of bed. Why? It's 10 p.m., you're cruising on work, you're loving it, but you know you should go to bed. Why? <laughs> and just getting really, so I, I, my challenge is to get really curious about why each of those shoulds exist, what the story is behind it, and then make a decision based on that versus making a decision based on the should. I love it. Thanks so much for joining us today, Tara. Well, thanks for having me, Charlie. Always a pleasure. All right, listeners. So you heard it from Tara. The next time you feel that should pop up, ask why. And I'll take it a little bit more. Really pay attention to who that should might be coming from. 
Until next time, stand tall and start finishing. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that'll help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.